Hey, good morning, Rockbridge, and welcome. Thank you so much. You've joined us at one of our six campuses physically, or maybe you're joining us digitally. I, my name is Matt. just want to welcome you. And hey, it's been a while since we've been back together physically, and just want to welcome everybody back as we come back slowly and cautiously. A lot of people have joined Rockbridge or started participating digitally from different states, just beyond even our own uh, Georgia, Tennessee footprint, even different countries. So we just want to welcome everyone, however you're watching watching, however you're engaging, thank you so much for being with us. And our prayer is you would receive what God has for you today. So is it not true that this is kind of an unprecedented season that we're sort of, that we're living through? And, and there's things that we're going through that not anybody that's alive has ever really been through. And I just want to kind of give you a little bit of a review. If you think back, those of you that have been tracking with Rockbridge for before the coronavirus, we went into a series called 30 Days to Live. And the whole genesis of that series was by, really because of the fact that we had seen inside our own church some very tragic untimely deaths that are just I told you normally they're like one of those a year and we were just having like multiple in about a three to four month period of time and into that in that same season as a nation, we lost one of our iconic figures when Kobe Bryant was killed tragically along with his daughter and seven other people in a helicopter crash. And at the same time, coronavirus jumped onto the scene, which to date has, has taken the lives of, of north of 100,000 Americans. And then at the same time, we're moving into a presidential election year, which often brings out the best, I'm, I'm sort of not really, in, in us. And, and then we've got an economic uncertainty and an economic crisis going on. And and then all this thing that keeps coming back up, unfortunately, in American history, the issue of race and racism and racial injustice and appropriate responses and inappropriate responses to all of those times uh, and all those situations. So this is for sure what I would call an uncertain season in the life of the world, in the life of our nation, and even inside our own psyche, because your psyche and my psyche is not designed to run on uncertainty. And that's why you feel stressed or you feel fearful or you feel confused or you feel doubtful or, or, or you feel fragile or whatever emotion you feel. And as we move into a series called Dear Church, here, here's the premise that uncertain times call for a healthy church or uncertain times call for a sure church or uncertain times call for a confident church. And we're gonna look at how Jesus works to create that and Jesus works to establish that. Now, let me, let me stop for just a second because anytime I say the word church, everybody's mind automatically goes somewhere. Some of you, your mind goes to somewhere not good because your church experience has not been good for which I apologize and for which we at Rockbridge are constantly repenting of and trying to do a better, more faithful job of being the church. Some of you, when I say the word church, you go to an hour, a place, a building, a meeting. But really, if you go back to what Jesus meant, church is just a group of people who've been called out by the love of God and they're mobilized and organized. So it's just people. So when I'm talking right now, there's two groups of people in the, in the room where you're gathered or online where you're watching. There's people who are the church or could be the church. That's it. There's people who are the church or could be the church. And, and we've been saying during this season, hey, Rockbridge, be the church 
Be the church, that means be the called out people of God. Be the mobilized, organized people of God. And isn't it beautiful that God built the church to be flexible and adaptable, not confined to 11 o'clock on Sunday morning? And we've seen that, all those kind of things. So when I'm talking today, I am talking about either you are the church or you could be the church. And so Jesus, in the book of Revelation, writes seven letters through the Apostle John to seven historical churches in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And we share a lot in common with these seven churches. We share a lot in common. In the Roman Empire, Rome was the superpower of the day, and there was a big notions that maybe Rome could establish this permanent peace, this permanent prosperity, and yet there's uncertainty going on inside the empire. There's hostile military armies on the borders of the Roman Empire, and, and then inside the Roman Empire, the Christian church is undergoing the uncertainty of persecution. There were Christians who were thrown to the gladiators, who were thrown to the lions. Several of the Roman emperors in the first century really wanted to get rid of Christians because Christians were claiming a a, a God other than Caesar. And into this, Jesus writes and Jesus gives us a message. Now, Now, here's what's ironic. We oftentimes, when we look at God, We want God to speak to the current event of the day, or we want God to change the government of the hour, or we want God to deal with this or deal with that. And what we see Jesus do in a time of uncertainty is like, no, no, I want to deal with my church. It's almost as if the church is crucial to what God wants to do in history. It's almost as so goes the church, so goes the society. So as the church goes, so goes the nation, if you will. Martin Luther King Jr. used to say the church is supposed to be a thermostat, meaning it affects the temperature one way or another. And so I think it's strategically important that of all the things Jesus could have addressed in the very last book of the Bible, he chose to write it and give it to seven actual churches that existed in history. So we join him in Revelation 2 verse 1 as he gives us a message. It's written, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The angel is either the pastor, the elders, or some angelic being that is assigned to every church. That's the three or four different interpretations. But notice it's the church in Ephesus. That always in the New Testament, the the mobilized people of God, the church, is associated with a geographic location or a geographic region. It's as if to say, hey, God's people are working in a way that's supposed to impact a larger group of people than the church itself. The church is, is a stewardship, right? Not just of the people inside the membership roles, not just the people who attend, who watch, who come, but the church is to have influence, I would say salt and light, that would be my phrase, in an actual city. So we could own that Rockbridge for Cleveland, for Hickson, for Ringo, for Dalton, for Calhoun, for Chatsworth, and wherever else God would be pleased to position us. So it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one, that's Jesus, his title, and we get a lot of symbolic representation of Christ. The one who holds the seven stars in in his right hand, that's Jesus with authority, that's Jesus with influence and power of a cosmic scope, not just a local scope, but a cosmic scope. And who walks among, so Jesus is among, the seven golden lampstands, and the golden lampstands are the analogy or the symbol of the church. So the church is supposed to shine light in a city 
as the called out people of God for the one who holds the authority or who holds the seven stars. And so here's what we see right out of the gate. The church is important to Jesus because she's his idea and she's his creation. And one of the things I always want to invite us to have, Rockbridge, is a maximal definition of the church. One of the plagues of Christianity in America is we've minimized the church and and her significance. We've reduced the church to one hour out of 168 in a week. We've reduced the church to a time and a place, but that's not the view Jesus has. And so he's calling his church, he's inviting his church to the full definition of his hopes and his dreams for her. And so we begin in this letter to see something emerge, that the foundation of health, a healthy person, a healthy church, the foundation of a healthy people of God is a clear view and a committed focus upon Jesus. Now now that may seem counterintuitive to you or that doesn't make sense because we're so focused on a presidential election or we're so focused on a virus or we're so focused on when do we get back to normal or we're worried about is the is football season going to happen or not or whatever your focus is it, we just have to admit isn't it easy to get our eyes off the main thing isn't it our easy to put our mind on something else or, or, or what things that don't matter for eternity that our focus drifts we get distracted we get clouded we get confused right And so into that confusion, that uncertainty of the first century, which parallels the uncertainty of the 21st century, Jesus gives us this beautiful revelation of himself. So so isn't this true though, Robert? Listen, we live in an age of distraction and disinformation and deception. And under this constant barrage of information, it's easy for all of us to become confused, angry, uncertain, suspicious, bitter, resentful, prone to blaming and shaming other people. I mean, if you watch the news, the news feeds on the worst version of you. Because you, you know what sells? Contempt, anger, and bitterness, and telling you who to blame for your problems. And that's what the news does. And it's easy for us to think, that's my biggest problem. That's what I need to focus on. And Revelation calls us, no. Focus on the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. So even in the church, though, many Christians, you want to hear me preach speculative messages about conspiracy theories and hoaxes that may or may not be signs of the end of times or a one world government or the mark of the beast. And as we enter into a presidential election year, we'll all be tempted to pin too much hope on who will occupy 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and as if our very happiness hinges upon what happens in November. So how do we live in such turbulent and toxic times? And the answer is not new, but it's no less powerful. So we have to regain and maintain a relentless focus on Jesus, our crucified, risen, and reigning Savior King. You see, the world and the media and even our own sinful tendencies want to focus on what might be, could be, rather than the God who is. So let's remember, every heart here today, every heart listening today, your heart was made to be captivated, your heart was made to worship, your heart was made to stand in awe, your heart was made to be led. That is true of every single human being ever created. And the only question you and I really have to answer and wrestle with is, 
Who or what will captivate my heart? Who or what will get my heart's worship? Who or what will my heart stand in awe of? And who or what will lead my heart? That's it. And your worst decisions and my worst decisions are when we chose the wrong who or what. So, dear church, let's lock our eyes once again on this Jesus. For those of you who are not yet the church, here's my invitation. Would you consider Christ? Would you look to Christ? Would you just contemplate Christ? He's not mad, but he is serious. He's not against your happiness. He's very much for it forever. He's not here to judge, but he does ask for your heart and will ask you to deal with competitors in your heart for allegiance and loyalty to him. And he's here today among us, church, so let's lean in and listen to him. And the beautiful message of Revelation is this. A lot of people get tripped up by Revelation because they're looking for the rapture or they're looking for what's the sign of the bees? Who's this antichrist? Who's the false prophet? Revelation is not the revelation of the antichrist. Revelation is not the revelation of the rapture. Revelation is not predominantly about bold judgments or trumpet sounds. Revelation, you know what the revelation is? The revelation of Jesus It's the revelation of Jesus Christ and we'll read it and miss Jesus and try to guess what this means. And man, do these locusts, does that represent the Apache helicopter pastor? I have no idea, it's about Jesus. (laughs) And, and, And Jesus is presented three ways in Revelation. Authority as a good, competent authority, glory or beauty, and then what I'm going to phrase jealousy as in jealous love, which sounds crazy, but we'll unpack. Now, now just think about it. Just think about everything we've gone through as a nation, as a society, as a people, as a church. Authority. Isn't that the big question? Who do you trust? I mean, can we really trust what the CDC said because they changed it on us? Can we trust the World Health Organization? Can we trust Dr. Fauci? Can we trust who's in the White House? Can we trust who's in the governor's mansion? Can we trust these things? And even even these battles, right? Now, listen, I'm gonna say something. And and if you're white, if you're one of my white brothers and sisters, you can't critique what I'm saying. I need you to honor what I'm saying. If you're an African-American, you have to ask this question. You are asking, can you trust the police? Now, it's easy for us as white people, some of us who are white, to say, well, that's ridiculous. But scripture would call us first to listen and honor and show empathy rather than critique or criticize. But isn't that the question that this age is, who can we trust? And so what happens is when you realize you can't trust maybe government, when you realize you maybe can't trust the doctors or not all of them, or one says this or one says that, and MSNBC says it this way and Fox says it that way, here's what you do. You say, well, I'll trust myself, my biases, my preferences, and those who think like I think. That's a very dangerous place to live. Glory and beauty. Everybody right now is looking for something transcendent. Do you know what transcendent means? Something that's bigger than a virus. Something that makes sense of all senseless stuff. We're looking for, where's the heroes anymore? Who are the heroes? Jesus is the hero and he's presented in glory and beauty. And then jealousy. Now, when I say jealousy, what I mean is jealous love. I'm jealous for the well-being of my kids. I'm jealous for my wife. I'm jealous for my church. I love my nation. I love my country. I love America. So I'm jealous for things that I'm part of or things that, 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 I'm, that are, are mine, right? <clears throat> and, and you're the same way. 
And, and so God exists as jealous love for you and for me. Listen to what Exodus says. You must worship no other gods, no competitors, no other gods, no competitors to Yahweh, no competitors to King Jesus. For the Lord, whose very name is jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. Now listen, I think the world, all of us are looking for love and, and, and we're looking, where, where, who's gonna love us best? Who's gonna love us most? And what you and I settle for often is conditional love. I mean, all of us know this story. Some of this, you, this, is the, this is a wound in your soul right now. You've been hurt by, I'll love you when and I'll love you if. I'll love you when you do these things. I'll love you if you do these things. That's conditional love and all of us have tasted it and received it. God's love is not I'll love you when or I'll love you if, it's just I love you because of who God is as jealous love for you. And it's incredibly good news because the God's jealous love means this. He's not satisfied with you being far from him. He's not satisfied with you being stuck in sin, in fear, in pain, in hopelessness, and in despair. He will actively, proactively pursue and woo and call and invite. Everybody here today, God is either calling you to a deeper knowledge of his love or he's wooing you into his love, period whether you know it or not. And your heart needs to be loved that way. Your heart longs to be loved that way. And so it's good news that Jesus is here in authority, in glory, and in jealous love. In fact, jealous love and all this explains a question many people have asked, Matt, why do bad things happen? Why doesn't God do anything about it? Because love, to be loved, can't be coerced, it can't be legislated, it can't be commanded. It just is, is a response, it's an experience, it's a reality. And so Jesus and God need and give us the freedom to some degree to say yes or no to his love. I mean, God could right now just boom, put us in left, right, left, automated mode and we would respond to him but he gives us some flexibility and some freedom. And the, the, the problem and the story of my life, the pain parts of my life, you know what they are? When I've chosen bad authorities, pursued lesser glories, and rejected his jealous love for a cheap substitute in the world. And that explains brokenness, that explains racism, that explains injustice, that explains the, the tragedies that befall the, a broken world and a broken humanity. But God's done something about it. What has he done because, and why has he done it? He's done something about it in Christ because of his jealous love. So doesn't the world, doesn't your heart need those things? And here they are in Revelation. Revelation of who? King Jesus, our Savior King. And so into that, Jesus begins a conversation with his church at Ephesus. And here's what he says. He says, I know your works and I know your labor and I know your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil people. So it's like, check, check, check. Everything's good, right? You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, so false teachers, and you found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of the name of Jesus or my name. You've not grown weary and yet you, you know, going to verse six here, you do, not ha you do have this going for you as well. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which was a group that taught a version of sexual immorality and idolatry, which I also, God says, I also hate. So you read this list and you're like, man, this is a great church. See, we're people who like lists, right? 
We're all, we're all sort of religious at heart. Like, give me the five, thing, five steps to a good marriage and am I doing these five things? And, and most of us grew up with some version of Christianity or religion that looked like, man, if you do these five things, you're okay. I mean, the church I grew up in, they even had an envelope where you put your tithe or your offering and on the front of the envelope was brought my Bible, check, read my Bible, check, check, you know, didn't cuss at anybody, check, 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 you know? And it's like, you, man, I'm doing good. And that's what this looks like, man, check, 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 this is a great church but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And and it's like Jesus is saying, look, it doesn't matter what list you keep. If you don't love me, it's meaningless. If I take Beth out on the best date ever, right? Flowers, some jewelry, everything else she likes, limo ride, best restaurant, spared no expense. And at the end of that, she goes, hey, Matt, why'd you do all this? And if I say, well, I just read it in a manual and these were the 22 things they said I was supposed to do. I mean, that's called a marriage fail, right? You know, that just wouldn't go over well. Doesn't matter how much money we spent. So God's like, look, you can keep every list in the book. If it doesn't come from a heart of love for me, I've got it against you because I'm looking for love. So Jesus sitting out there keeping score and doesn't have a checklist for or against you. He just wants to love you and for you to love him back. He's looking for love in his church because he knows this. Listen, listen, listen. If a, if a certain church is for uncertain times, the more certain you are that, you, that God loves you and that you love him back, I promise you from that foundation, from that source, it will begin to resolve and solve all of your money problems, your marriage problems, and all of the world's problems. That's why we start with Ephesus, right? And we start with first love. So what do we see about first love for Jesus? First, we see that it's reflexive. Now, you know what a reflex is. You go to the doctor and he takes out the little hammer or uses his hand, he pops you in front of your kneecap and boom, your leg kicks up as a reflexive response. When the loving hand of God hits your heart, when you see the love of God in the crucified hands of Savior, your Savior and that hits your heart, boom, there's a response in your heart. If it's not hardened or deceived, your heart goes, that's the love I've been looking for. Someone who would love me not, because, not when I, not because I, but who would just love me because they love me. Someone who would love me so much that they would die for in my place, right? Someone who would love me so much that I deserve nothing but hell and wrath and condemnation. And here Jesus is ready, ready to adopt me, give me the kings of, an, of, the, of the kingdom and give me an inheritance that will not spoil or perish. It's a reflexive love. 1 John 4, 19 says it this way. We love him because he first loved us. And what does this mean? It means nobody here was born in love with God. In fact, you were born more in love with yourself and your toys and your trinkets than you were in love with God. You preferred stuff other than God. Now, you might have want to use God to get you that stuff, but you love that stuff or love that pursuit more than you love God. And then if the love of God hits you in your heart, boom, reflex is we'll love him back. And where do we see God's love most clearly? See, a lot of us, listen, listen, let's be honest. You want to see the love of God right now. A loving God would create a vaccine for this stinking virus so we can get back to normal and do our stuff. A loving God would make this recession V-shaped, not U-shaped. A loving God would ensure the NFL and NCAA football comes back on time, baby, right? That's what a loving God would do, right? But where do we see how God loves us most and best? We see it right here that he demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were yet sinners Christ died for us 
The love of God question is answered on a cross 2,000 years ago. That's why we always, we never graduate from this. We never get past this. We just go deeper into it and deeper in our appreciation for it. So this means that we didn't deserve one drop of Jesus's blood. People say, well, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? The question is this, how can a loving just God allow anybody into heaven? The Bible is never bothered, never bothered by this notion that God would send anybody to hell. The Bible's always amazed that God is loving and merciful enough to adopt any one of us into his family. How did he do that? Right here, Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. And, and, and this is my hope for this season, that we could recapture, regain and understand what this means and understand how powerful this is. Now, you know, a lot of you and I, we've been asked this question a lot. How are you doing in this season? And the, the cool thing about this is most of us have stopped to listen long enough to really get a good answer. And you've asked me this, many of you. And I just want, and I've said I'm good and I'm better than good. And I, I want to go deeper because I think sometimes, and, I, and I'm praying about this even as I speak, I think sometimes you need to get a little bit of a deeper glimpse of what's going on in my heart as your primary teaching pastor, your pastor here. So when I say I'm good, here's what I mean. I'm good because during this season, Jesus has walked amongst my soul in a more profound way than in a long time, lovingly rebuking me and correcting me, compelling me forward by grace. I've heard his voice impressing thoughts and insights into my mind and heart more clearly than in a long time. And it's been beautifully painful and refreshingly wonderful at the same time. I see more clearly how glorious King Jesus is and that my heart, while prone to wander in sin and prone to prefer lesser gods, my heart was made to worship him, to worship him. I see more clearly how every good in my life has flowed through him, is of him, and ultimately points to him. I mean, I just started reflecting on how I was raised, reflecting on God's providence to allow me, uh, before I started school, to be raised or be kept by an incredibly godly great-grandmother. And before I even became a Christian, she was showing me the love of Jesus. I I remember in high school, man, I I spent a lot of Friday and Saturday nights at home alone because I I was following Christ and most of my friends at the time weren't. And it was during those seasons when Jesus taught me, hey, I'm enough for you. I I see in my sinfulness, you know, the closer you get to God and he's holy, the more you realize how unholy you are. But in that, God's shown me, man, how, how his grace is deeper than my sin. I see it in my quest to answer the question we're all trying to answer, who am I? And I've tried to answer the who am I question through performance and through pleasing people, yet those answers led me to more lostness, more stress, more anxiety. And increasingly, I'm learning to live from the identity that I am simply who he says I am, saved, redeemed, adopted, dearly loved, and chosen by his jealous love. So when I stand up here and say, Jesus is the answer. I do not want you to hear me speaking cliche and Christianese. 
I want you to hear me speaking from my own heart. Jesus is the answer. I I think of the 100,000 plus Americans who have died from the coronavirus, and I wonder how many of them knew Jesus as their Savior King. And I wonder if his church is more bothered by the virus called COVID or the virus called sin. I I think about all who, uh, people, millions, billions, who are just afraid to die. And I I pray they know that death is not the worst thing that could happen. A heart not satisfied by King Jesus is the worst thing that can happen. I, I think of racism which is ultimately rooted in the insecurity of a person that finds false comfort in the false thinking of believing, well, at least I'm not that color or I'm at least better than those people. Instead of Jesus who teaches us that every human being is made in the image of God and they're worthy of honor and dignity and yet all of us fall short of the standard of that image of God and thus worthy of God's justice and wrath and therefore all of us need to come to the cross of Christ and be saved, be transformed and be restored so we can truly love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. I think of all the people who think politics is the savior of America and the world and certainly while important, Politics are not ultimate. So I long for a church whose primary politics are Jesus on the throne forever and that we, his church, would focus more on winning people to Christ than who wins in November. So, uh, dear church, I'm good. And this is the time for the church, the people of God, to be the people of God. Because the world is looking for authority, for glory, and for jealous love. And for that, we have the revelation of Christ. Now, not only is this love reflexive, but it's also exclusive. Jealous love is exclusive. Now, what we mean by exclusive is the same thing we would say to a husband and wife. The same thing we would say, till death do you part, right? This is now an exclusive male-female relationship, a covenant And that's why Jesus points us to marriage as an illustration of the exclusivity of his love. This is why God says, and we read it in Exodus 34, 14, no other gods. And he doesn't mean a statue in your house. He means money, he means sex, he means pleasure, he means a thousand other things. No competitors, because he's jealous. And the quality of his love is such that when it hits our heart, the reflex is to want Jesus' love and to love him back exclusively. This is why Jesus says this in John 14, which causes a lot of people to, uh, to revolt. In fact, I read this passage in church one day, and a guy was sitting right up there, and he got up, said a cuss word, and says, I can't take this, and left. Listen to it. Anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus telling you to hate the people you're sitting next to? No. He's just saying Jesus is so worthy, so perfect, so beautiful, so glorious that compared to your love from him, everything else pales in comparison. So he really means there's no competitors to that kind of love, right? And so the question today that we'll end with this is how do we get back to that love, that first love? See, when he says you've abandoned the love at first, he means we've drifted or we've been deceived or we've been distracted or we haven't been intentional about loving God back, the one who loves us most and best and longest. 
And so he gives us three things. Revelation 2, 5. He says, remember then how far you have fallen. In your love for me is the context. So some of you who are Christians today, Christ followers today, I want you to remember how excited you were when you first realized, man, I'm a sinner and Jesus is a savior. When you first kind of got the love of God as displayed on the cross and you got, maybe you remember your baptism. Maybe you remember that time when, man, Jesus just came alive to you. And man, you were passionate, couldn't keep you out of church, couldn't keep you out of the Bible. If Jesus said, hey, I want you to run a marathon, you'd say, I'm starting training tomorrow. If Jesus says, you know, before even Jesus says the question, your answer was yes. And then what happened to us? We abandoned, right? We drifted. We weren't intentional. Jesus lost his luster. We found another little temporary pursuit or trinket or toy to chase. So today, I just ask all you Christ followers, remember that. Now, those of you that are not yet part of the church, those of you that are not yet Christians, those of you that not yet kind of said yes to his yes to you or his love for you, I just want, you're here today and he's wooing you to love. He's wooing you back to him. He's wooing you. He says, hey, there is something your heart is wired to receive and it's me and I have it and I offer it freely by faith. And, and so don't, don't just brush that off. Don't just say, hey, my biggest problem is the economy. I'm out of here. No, your biggest problem is your heart prefers a good economy rather than a perfect savior. Don't just say, oh, my biggest problem is I could get sick and die. No, your biggest problem is you could get sick and die without having said yes to the love of God in Jesus Christ. So the solution, remember then how far you've fallen. Then he says, repent, change your mind, change your behavior, change your thinking, change your perspective, change your values, prefer Christ to anything else. And do the works you did at first, so back to the beginning. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, what's he saying? I don't need an uncertain, unconfident church. I don't need a church that's more worried about one hour a week. I need a church that's willing to be salt and light 168 hours a week. I don't need a church who's corrupted and impure and in love with itself. I need a church who's willing to come back to first love and then shine that love into a world in need of it. So his solution is threefold. The first is we need to look back and remember. Remember what, what made us a Christian. Remember, know what makes you a Christian. It's not anything you do. In, in fact, nobody here today that's a Christ follower, nobody became a Christian with a to-do list. You became a Christian when you looked at what Christ had done. And it hit your heart, grabbed your heart, captivated your heart enough to take a step of faith and say, yes, I want to pursue him. I want to follow him as my savior and my king. So if you're, if you're, if you're here today, you're not yet part of the church, you're not a Christian, God's not asking you to do anything. Because you can't do anything to earn or deserve his love. You just receive it as you are and then follow him into your future. Here's the good news then, right? We said Jesus is looking for love, but he's also seeking to produce it. How does Jesus produce love in a heart? He can't command it. We can't legislate it. He just shows you his love in the prayer and the work of the Spirit that you, would, you and I would choose to love him back. Have you ever chosen to love God back? If we looked at your time, your money, your heart, would there be a foundational love for Christ? Are we even here today because we love Jesus or we just love getting back to normal? Let's come back to first love, which is the next step.
just come back. He's not, you know, because a lot of people are like, hey, I need to read my Bible more, I need to be in church more. I would say, yes, true. But the bottom line is you just need to come back to a love relationship with a God who is a perfect authority, who's perfect beauty, and who's perfect in jealous love. And just come back to love. Come back and love him back. And everything else from there will sort itself out. Everything. If you're sitting with me and we're working on your marriage, you'll love your spouse best when you love Jesus the most, period. Period. You're stressed about money and the economy. If you love Jesus the best, he will take care of the rest. Maybe not the way you want him to, but he will. And so when he says come back, you know, he's not saying to think of your sin as a performance problem. That's what a lot, oh, I just got to try harder. Got to do better. See sin as a failure of intimacy and relationship. You know, there's things in my life that I used to say, those are no big deal. And then I saw how they either hurt my kids or hurt my wife. And they became a big deal. See, a lot of us are sitting out here, hey, this sin, it's no big deal. Ah, God understands. Nobody's perfect. If it put Jesus on the cross, the one who loves you most, loves you best, loves you longest, it's a big deal. And if you would see that sin as part of an impediment to a love relationship with the God of the universe, you would begin to have the power to quit that sin. Because it's about a first love for Jesus. And then he closes, as always in these letters, with a promise. He says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now notice he started talking to one church and he broadens it to churches. That means this message is for all of us today. Because remember the church is, is, is it people who are the people of God or people who could be the people of God. To the one who conquers, who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so he's talking now, uh, just an, an, an allusion back to Genesis, and the tree of life, the tree of satisfaction, the eternity, the tree of nourishment. And so what he's saying is, he says, listen, as you hang in there, and as you fight for love, look ahead and realize the best is yet to come. So I, I want us all today, just use our imagination our informed, sanctified imagination. Look ahead to a day when there's no death. Look ahead to a day when there's no racism. Look ahead to a day when you don't have to worry about how much money's in the bank and will we make our, 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 we'll be able to pay our bills at the end of the month. Look ahead to a day when there's no such thing as a virus. Look ahead to a day when you see this Jesus clearly and experience his love fully. And then you hope more for that day than any other day than this life on earth can produce. But today you have to fight because love is always a fight. Ask anybody who's been married two weeks past their honeymoon. Love is a fight. Why? Because you and I have this little thing called choice and preference, right? And the world is always competing for you to prefer something over your first love for God. He can, and the world and Satan and your flesh will take the good and make it the enemy of the best, Jesus. And so Jesus invites us today, let's be clear about who he is. Let's be clear about what he is and what he's about. 
And would we all choose to focus relentlessly upon him because he is the authority that we can willingly, joyfully, and happily surrender to. He is the glory we are made to worship and stand in awe of. And he is the jealous love all of our hearts have been looking for. We've just been looking for it in all the wrong places. He's here today. Would we just say yes or yes again to him? Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. And if your spirit is working on a heart today that's not hard or deceived, I pray, God, there would be hundreds, thousands of people just saying yes or yes again to Christ. Yes, for the first time. Jesus, your love has hit me today. I need a savior. I need a king. I need an authority, a beauty, and a lover. And I find those things in you, and I'm saying yes to you. You have the steering wheel of my life. Some of us, God, we need to say yes again because we realize we've drifted, we've abandoned. But we're back. And thank you, God, that you never left. And thank you, God, that you kept inviting and wooing and chasing and pursuing. And we're back. I'm coming back, Jesus, to you, to love for you. And a thousand things that spring from a life in love with you. God, hear your church. We hear your word to us. But hear your church back to you. That our resolve as a people of God, is to be more about Jesus and more focused on him than anything else in the world and to grow in our love for him. That's our resolve. Hear our hearts. Hear our prayers. Give us ears to hear your word to your church. These things we pray in the name above all names, the name of the one who loved us first, loved us most, loves us best, loves us longest. King Jesus, our Savior. Amen.